This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Happy Monday. Welcome to the Sean Spicer Show. I hope you are enjoying your Labor Day weekend. You know, Labor Day has always had a special place in my heart. I've been doing campaigns for 30 years. I did my first one in 1993 in the lead up to the contract with America. And Labor Day has always been the traditional real kickoff to the political season. Um, I know we don't have a lot of big elections. We do here this year in Virginia, where I live and vote, uh, and New Jersey and a couple other gubernatorial races. There's a race in Kentucky and a couple other ones around the country. But this is when everybody comes into focus, that final 100-day dash. And and so there's going to be a lot of discussions about where we are politically. Then the Congress has a lot to get to right now with the spending bills. But the big thing I think that everyone's focusing on are these indictments that Trump is facing. And you see all of the charts that are laid out in the mainstream left-wing media. This trial, this caucus, this primary, all this thing is played out. There's four of them. And there's like a car crash coming with around March with a lot of these cases and how things are going to play out. And so I thought it was a a great opportunity to sit down with... um, Alan Dershowitz, famed lawyer, uh, author, to go over where they all stand, what they all mean, and the consequences. Now, the beautiful thing about Dershowitz is he's a liberal Democrat. He's a liberal Democrat, never voted for Trump, says he never will, but he believes in the Constitution, he believes in law. And so if Alan Dershowitz is concerned, then we should be too, because he doesn't want Trump to win, but he is worried about what's happening to Trump legally and how this is being handled. And so my point is, is that this is someone on the left who's saying what's going on with Trump is not right. We need to heed his warnings and understand what's happening. The left is going after Trump. They want to get Trump regardless of the law because they want to keep him off the ballot. That's the key. Keep him off the ballot. The discussion we're about to have offers an analysis about what's happening that you will not get anywhere else. Let's get into it. All right, uh, maybe you're sitting around all weekend trying to figure out how to kill some time, going for a walk, going to the gym. You're in the car ride, I don't know, but this is the beauty. If you can stop for a second, subscribe everywhere. YouTube, Rumble, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get it, but make sure you're, you've got like duplicity. Subscribe and click the notification button. It helps their show grow. Um, we're up against a lot of corporate media right now that doesn't want us to exist. That's the bottom line. But we're successful because of you, because you guys have subscribed and shared. So thank you for that. Please continue to do that and have some duplicity. Go to Apple Podcasts, get the audio version and YouTube uh, and do that as well. Thank you if you're watching on the first, appreciate that as well. But even if you're watching on the first, please go to YouTube and Apple Podcasts. Those are really big for the success of the show. So thank you a ton. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. conditions apply. See website for details. As I said, a great conversation headed your way with Alan Dershowitz. Um, as I said before, he's a perfect person because he's an expert. He's seen it all legally. Uh, tons of books on all sorts of things. But the current one is literally called Get Trump. Get Trump. He knew this was coming. He's defended Trump. He stood in the well of the Senate of the United States as a liberal Democrat defending Donald Trump. This is the guy who's willing to sacrifice everything for the rule of law, for the Constitution. That's who I think we should be paying attention to. Because there's a bunch of people on the right, and I get it, I, I've listened to them all. But uh, my view is that this guy on the left is willing up to say what is happening now is wrong. And he doesn't like Trump. He doesn't like his style. He doesn't like his politics. But he's undergone a ton. He, you want to talk about somebody who's been canceled. The left can't stand this guy. He's told me before he can't go to different religious uh, events because he's been disowned and ridiculed. For what, though? For standing up for the truth. So I'm excited to share with you a great conversation. I think I've encapsulated almost all the questions that I've heard people have asked me to ask him. So I want to get into it now with Alan Dershowitz. Professor Alan Dershowitz, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So look, there's so much to break down and you are the perfect person to break it down. I, I want to start with this though. There, Yesterday, Mark Meadows was in court down in Fulton County. He's making the case that he's a federal official, he's the White House chief of staff, uh, and that this he should be having this case tried in federal court because not only was he a federal official, but the call that was made to Secretary of State Raffensperger occurred over state lines, right? White House is in D.C., the Secretary of State's in Georgia. So first of all, one, will he be successful in that motion? And secondly, why hasn't President Trump asked for the same thing? Well, President Trump will if Meadows is successful. Trump has an even stronger case than Meadows, but Meadows has a very, very strong case. Um, he made his call as chief of staff on the orders of the president. Now, they say it was an illegal call, but that would mean that nobody could come under the statute because people who come under the statute are always charged with crime. So the other side will always argue, well, it was outside of his duties, it was criminal. That's not what the statute was intended to do. It was intended to take allegations, accusations of crimes committed by federal officials while on duty as federal officials and move them to what was regarded as a more objective federal court than a more possibly biased uh, state court. In this case, of course, the bias is there. Uh, the county is overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly Democrat and anti-Trump. So there's a very strong argument to move the case to federal court. And if he prevails, I think Trump will make the same argument. But, Giuliani but just, may make hold the on, argument he, I guess as well. My, but what, just here's what I don't understand as a layperson. If you were President Trump and you just said it yourself, has a stronger case. He's literally the president. There's no question he's a federal official and he's the one actually making the call. Are you risking something by having Meadows make the first move? Because if he was unsuccessful, wouldn't it therefore be a higher bar potentially? Well, I don't think Trump controls Meadows at this point. Meadows has an excellent, very experienced lawyer who's making those decisions. Um, and I think it cuts both ways. I think even if Meadows were to lose, Trump would have a good chance of winning. It depends on the language that the court 
use. Now, I know Rudy Giuliani is going to try this as well. He's not a federal official, but he was uh, employed as a lawyer for the president of the United States. So he, too, is going to try to come under this statute. And um, there are very, very few precedents on it. And so the case may get fairly quickly to the Supreme Court, because if they lose, they may seek what's called an interlocutory appeal or mandamus, some way of getting the case from the trial court up to the Court of Appeals and then eventually to the Supreme Court. And that may also delay the trial. I mean, this is all about timing. You know the strategy. The prosecutors want to get a down and dirty conviction against Trump and his associates as quickly as possible uh, in as biased a jurisdiction as possible, knowing that they risk appellate reversal. But if they can get the conviction before the election and the appellate reversal occurs after the election, well, they've achieved their goals of election right. interference. So, you know, I, as a boy, I, I first came to know you uh, when you were defending Klaus von Bülow. And, and I grew up uh, uh, at my, my father's office was just down the street from that courthouse. And I a couple of times snuck in and, and watched the great Alan Dershowitz. You, so, you know, Rhode Island, the RICO statute, I mean, I think was almost made for organized crime in places like Rhode Island. Did it surprise you that that Fannie Willis, the DA in Georgia, used a RICO statute to go after Trump? Because, again, as a layperson, I look at this and say, so a lot of this seems to be uh, them going after lawyers talking to a client. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I predicted in my book, Get Trump, I predicted all four of these indictments. I predicted them correctly. Mark Levin called me the Nostradamus of lawyers. What I did not predict is that they would go after him on RICO because it's foolish. It's stupid. The New York Times today, which is certainly very anti-Trump, had an op-ed by a lawyer from Georgia saying how foolish it was to use the RICO statute. You know, I had a client once, a nice man of, of, of uh, Italian-American background, and he was indicted under RICO. And he said to me, hey, Alan, these RICO statute, it's anti-Italian. <laughs> I, I said, what do you mean? He says, they call it RICO. They don't call it Morris. They don't call it James. They call it RICO. All my friends are named RICO. Uh, you know, Obviously, everybody knows that the RICO statute was aimed at the Italian mafia. It was then extended to drug cartels and uh, sometimes very complex business dealings. It was never intended to be used against political uh, organization against an election. Look, I was part of Trump. Uh, I was part of uh, Gore versus uh, Bush. I represented the voters of Palm Beach County in the butterfly ballot. Uh, were we a RICO? <clears throat> we were together. We were challenging everything. We were calling for selective recounts. Um, uh, Professor Tribe was coming up with all kinds of weird ideas about how to challenge this election and that election everywhere. Nobody dreamed of going after us for, for RICO. We were just citizens that were exercising our First and Sixth Amendment rights, the right to petition the government and the right to counsel. So in the book, you, you, you lay out these charges you predict to find by the way after this is done i'm going to ask you for powerball numbers hey guys it is ryan i'm not sure if you know this about me but i'm a bit of a fun fanatic when i can i like to work but i like fun too it's a thing and now the truth is out there i can tell you about my favorite place to have fun chumba casino they have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week you can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Uh, <laughs> but, but so how do you think that, I, I guess the thing that I find fascinating is 
the people that I talk to seem to say the law is out the window in a lot of these cases, meaning that the desire to get Trump, the name of your book, is so overwhelming that a lot of people on the left and, and frankly, lawyers as well and judges potentially are willing to overlook what should be common sense things that you're describing because they want to literally get Trump. Yeah, I'm reminded when I was a young civil rights worker, I went down south in the early 1960s and we were trained at Howard University and we were told, do not spit on the sidewalk because they will arrest you for destroying government property. Do not put a cigarette out on the sidewalk. Do not cross against the light. They're out to get you. Get civil rights workers and they will convict you. So you have to make sure you do nothing, even arguably, that it subjects you to arrest. That's what's going on here. They're going after lawyers. They're going after political consultants. They're going after anybody. The 65 Project has threatened to disbar and discipline any lawyer who defends Trump. So I wrote an op-ed piece calling him a bunch of McCarthyites. What do you think they did? They filed a bar charge against me in Massachusetts. Um, and, and, and they're going after everybody. Uh, you know, obviously there's no substance to the bar charge they filed, but nonetheless, it's costing me a lot of money and it means I can't appear in certain courts until it's resolved. They'll stop at nothing to get Trump. They don't care who they run over in their way. They must get Trump and they must get him before the election because the goal is to prevent him from voting. Look, I have a constitutional right to vote against Trump for the third time, just like you have a constitutional right to vote for him. And uh, Project 65 and, and judges and prosecutors shouldn't be able to interfere with our right to cast a ballot for or against Donald Trump. That's the American way. So you mentioned getting the conviction, and I agree with you, both in the Georgia case and the Jack Smith case in DC, where just the jury pool is such that it doesn't really matter what the facts are. There's a predisposition to go after uh, folks on the right and definitely Donald Trump. And so when I asked the president's son, Don Jr., at the debate, he mentioned he thought it would definitely go to the Supreme Court. Do you see it playing out that way? And, and frankly, does the timeline allow for it? Meaning, if he were convicted, do they have to review it in time? Well, You've asked, as usual, the hardest questions and the most important question. It's all about timing. There are two ways of getting into the Supreme Court. One, to make an appeal before the trial. It's called an interlocutory appeal or writ of mandamus and put it on a fast track and get it to the Supreme Court. That's possible. The other is to wait for a conviction, which is allowing them to achieve their goal and then trying to put it on a fast track before the election. The latter is more difficult because uh, trials, when they're appealed, have lots and lots of paper to go through. Uh, for, take, for example, this case in, in, in D.C., where this trial judge has decided to have the case tried in six months. Now, there are, according to my calculations, 12.8 million documents that the government turned over as exculpatory. You know what they do? They pull a trick. They give you 12 million documents. There may be 200 that are really relevant, but you have to play needle in the haystack. You have to go through every one of the 12 million documents to find the several hundred that are really, really exculpatory. Um, uh, at, at a pace of uh, every day reading the documents, you'd have to read 71,111 pages a day. I'm as fast a reader as there is, and I've done all these cases on appeal. I can read carefully maybe 1,000 pages a day. If I really rush, maybe 1,500. But 71,000 pages a day, I would refuse to appear in court. 
I would say to the judge, Your Honor, I don't care how many robes you're wearing and how many oaths you've taken and who nominated you and who confirmed you. No judge can make me commit malpractice. No judge can make me engage in ineffective assistance of counsel. It's like asking a brain surgeon to open up someone's skull without seeing the CAT scan, the PAT scan, and the blood test. That's not the way I practice law, Your Honor. That may be the way you run your courtroom, but it's not the way I practice law. And I refuse to participate in this charade, and you should refuse as well. Let's see if the lawyers uh, are prepared to make that kind of an argument they should. So you've got these four cases, and this goes to the heart of what you're talking about in terms of timing. Um, the judge in D.C., Chutkin, just announced that she set the date for March 4th, which just coincidentally, coincidentally happens to be the day before Super Tuesday. Um, right. But what would you advise the team, the, the Trump legal team in terms of I get what your point. I actually, I think that's brilliant, right? You, here's how many documents there are. Here's how many the average person can read. Here's how big our legal team is. Your Honor, you're asking us to do X. But there's four different cases. How should they approach the timing on each one? I mean, I'm not asking you to dissect each, each one of them, but th it seems like this is a car crash. They're all coming yeah. together. Well, in, in, in my book, Get Trump, I do dissect each of the four cases. And right now, there are three trials scheduled for March, three trials scheduled for March. Each one will probably take months and are among the most important cases in American history. Three scheduled for March. These judges are just violating the Constitution left and right, mostly left. And then there's one case scheduled for May. No lawyer can ever do that. And you know what the judge and the prosecutors are saying? Well, you don't have to read every page. Yes, I do. Right. I don't assign young kids right out of law school to do my work for me. I read every page when I'm doing a case, when I'm doing a trial. And you never know what you're going to find a nugget in, in one case. I won a case a few years ago where everybody missed a point, um, an important point. I found it in reading the transcript. And we won the case as the result of that. If I had been rushed to read 71,000 pages in a day, I never could have found that. And, you know, what happens is you lose the case, then you make a motion for a new trial based on violation of the Jenks rule or the Brady rule that require government to turn over material. Then the government comes in and says, see, on page 11,633, footnote seven, that piece of evidence was there and the defense failed to find it. Shame on them. It's their fault. They waived it. Right. That's the argument that's going to get made. They're setting it up for a scandal, and it's unfair, and it's unwise for the judges to participate in this. The judges should say, I'm going to give the defense as much time as they need. And, and Judge Chutkin, she doesn't know the law. She basically said that the Constitution gives the right to uh, the government for a speedy trial. She said there's a public interest in a speedy trial. No, there's not. Only the defendant has the right to a speedy trial. The so, government must give you a fair trial, not a speedy trial. So, so one and of the a fair trial requires time to prepare. So, all of the arguments that you just brought up make complete sense, um, and they're rooted in the law. One of the things that the judges have imposed on Trump is this quasi gag order, saying that if he intimidates witnesses, if he says stuff, he will be in violation of his bond. Um, one would believe that the arguments that you just made to me that are in your book. Uh, would be ones that would be protected under the First Amendment because he can express himself. But given how you've described the process, okay, not what the law is, but what you just said to me about how these judges are interpreting it, 
Is there a concern or should there be a concern from Trump and his team that there, one of these judges is going to find him in violation of this quasi gag order about what he can and cannot say, especially on social media? There is a risk of that. I don't think a judge would do that. You remember, we have a presumption of innocence. Under the law, Trump, you and I have exactly the same status. Three of us are innocent people. Trump, however, has been indicted, not by grand juries, because grand juries have nothing to do with the indictment process. They're just chairs that are moved around by the prosecution. The best proof of that is in Georgia, where they leaked the indictment before it was voted. <laughs> we know that grand juries have no influence. We know that a grand jury will indict anybody a prosecutor wants him to. So what's happened? Prosecutors have decided these guys are guilty and suddenly they lose all their rights. What about the presumption of innocence? No. Uh, look, you can't tamper with witnesses, but if you tamper with witnesses, you've committed a crime so they can arrest them for that. Uh, there's no need to impose bail conditions. Bail conditions are supposed to guarantee two things. Number one, that the person doesn't flee. And believe me, Donald Trump's not going anywhere. Right. Uh, even if he didn't have that mugshot, he'd be the most recognized person in, <laughs> in the world. And number two, that he won't commit kind of violent crimes that are irreme irremediable. Um, none of that's at work here. They're using the fact that there has been an indictment, a fake indictment, because all indictments essentially are fake, um, to to prevent him from campaigning in his style. I don't like his style. That's why I don't vote for him. But that's his style. And he attacks people and he calls them names. And some judge might think of that as witness intimidation. I don't think of that as witness intimidation. I think of that as, you know, Trump's politics. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So one of the things that has garnered a lot of attention, especially from folks on the right, which I think was initially dismissed, but seems to be getting more traction in states like New Hampshire, is this idea that at some point under the 14th Amendment, Section 3, which talks about anyone you know, who is engaged, engaged in insurrection, um, that they will be removed from the ballot. And the Secretary of State in New Hampshire has said that he is seeking an opinion from the Attorney General. Now, let me play this out for you a second. You take New Hampshire, Michigan, maybe Pennsylvania, and say, we're going to remove him from the 14, because of the 14th Amendment because he engaged in an insurrection, even though he's never been charged with an insurrection, even though he's been guilty, whatever. But play this out for me. And then there's an election where almost by default, Trump will be enabled to get 270 electoral votes. That's would right. there be any recourse? Of course. There would be what? recourse to the Supreme Court. The problem is that, you know, Professor Lawrence Tribe and Judge Ludic have made up this story. It, uh, I know the 14th Amendment as well as they do. It was designed to make sure that people who fought for the South in the Civil War didn't get elected to state or federal positions. The amendment itself has all kind of provisions in it that show it's related to the Civil War. It talks about enslaved people. It talks about paying the debts of the southern states. It talks about all the things relating to the Civil War. And then suddenly they interpret this as self-enforcing. There's no process. 
It doesn't say it has to be part of an indictment. It doesn't say the Senate has to do it or the House has to do it. With impeachment, we have a process. With the 25th Amendment, we have a process. With the 14th Amendment, it's, quote, self-enforcing, which means Lawrence Tribe and, and Judge Ludic can say we have an opinion that we think he's engaged in insurrection or rebellion. And if the Secretary of State, who nobody's ever heard of, concludes that he determines who the next president of the United States is. Do you really think the framers of the 14th Amendment had that undemocratic, anti-democratic uh, view in mind? No, obviously but, but, not. This is made up by by radical zealots, some of them Republicans, by the way, like right. Judge Ludic, who are part of the Get Trump uh, posse. Uh, they're so anti-Trump, they're prepared to destroy the Constitution. They're prepared to, to use any means toward the uh, end of getting Trump. And that's why it's so important for Democrats like me and liberals to fight against my fellow Democrats who are misusing the Constitution for their own partisan political ends. For me, the Constitution is more important than party affiliation. Okay, so this is where I need your help then, because I, so let's just hypothetically say, for the sake of argument, that New Hampshire, Michigan, Pennsylvania remove Trump from the ballot. Um, I have long believed that, the, you know, unless he could get an immediate relief um, on that ballot, that, the, that there would be an election and the Dems would say, well, sorry, the election happened. You say the Supreme Court, when would the Supreme Court intervene and would there be enough time? Because part of the problem is once the ballots are printed, oh, well, he wasn't on it. And you well, can't believe me, I believe me, I understand that I represented the people who were victimized by the butterfly ballot in Palm Beach. OK, and, and what's the recourse changed. then once the election yeah, happens? The, the recourse is it would be an illegitimate election if if Trump was disqualified in enough states that could have put him over the top, the election would be illegitimate. And the Supreme Court hopefully would hold that before the election. Um, you know, it might have to have an extreme remedy, an extreme remedy, postponing the election for a week or 10 days right. or making ballots printed on an emergency 24-7 basis. Uh, you, one would hope you wouldn't have to undo an election and call for a new election a day. That's never happened in American history even during the Civil War, even during the First and Second World Wars, we always have our elections on the right day. But these radical anti-Trump zealots like, like Tribe and Ludic are destroying democracy. They're calling for uh, remedies that would undo the right of people in certain states to cast their ballot. That's just unconstitutional. Uh, everybody over the age of, you know, we fought so hard to change the Constitution. We now, black people can vote, women can vote, young people can vote, but Republicans can't vote, according to Lawrence Tribe and, and, and Ludicus. They're afraid they might vote for Donald Trump. And electing Donald Trump, they think, is worse than destroying the Constitution. I don't agree. So in the book, you said that, you know, you, you lay out all four of these cases. You've got the, the, the Alvin Bragg case in New York. You've got two Jack Smith cases, right, Florida and D.C. And then you've got this Fannie Willis case down in Georgia. From your perspective, if you're handicapping the four indictments, rank them from one to four in terms of concern to the Trump team. Well, I think there are two ways of ranking them. The strongest case is the Florida case in which Donald Trump is on video waving a material saying it was classified. I could have declassified it. I didn't. It's secret. That's a smoking cigarette butt case. Why do I say smoking? It's like a smoking gun. But it's such a tiny little case, it's a cigarette butt. 
you know, so many people have had classified material that that's not worthy of being brought. But it's the strongest case. The weakest by far is New York, but it's New York. It's Manhattan. I don't think I don't think, you know, Jefferson, Adams, Lincoln, Jesus and Mohammed could win a case for Donald Trump uh, in, in New York. Uh, so that that's a tough case for him. The D.C. case by far is is the hardest because it's a good prosecutor generally. Um, a thin case, not like Georgia, which is uh, a bizarre case. And it's in the District of Columbia, where 95 or so percent of the people uh, voted against Trump and probably 80 percent hate him. And it's in a district where there's not a lot of voir dire of jurors. So I would think that Trump has the greatest concern about D.C. Also, if he loses in D.C., it strengthens the argument that he's committed insurrection or rebellion, even though he's not charged with that you can then interpret that verdict in that way, and it would strengthen the 14th Amendment case. So I think by far the most challenging case uh, for Trump is is the D.C. case. I think the Georgia case, parts of it will be thrown out. It's a mess, 19 defendants. Some of them want a speedy trial. Some of them want a slow trial. But D.C., uh, with a March 4th uh, trial day, poses the greatest challenge to, to Donald Trump. And uh, his lawyers are probably up to it, but you know, no lawyer can read uh, seventy-one thousand pages a day. It's just impossible. Well, they can read your book and then hopefully be ready to to know what to look no, for. No, that won't be enough. That won't Uh-oh. be enough. That'll be enough to have a conversation with me, but not enough to stand in front of twelve jurors and defend the man's life and liberty. Let, let me get back to that Georgia case for just a second. You mentioned you've got Trump and then eighteen co-defendants. How does something like that work? I mean, you, you mentioned. Uh, some of them want a speedy trial. Some of them wanted to go to federal court. Uh, some of them have disparate interests. How does does that have to stay together or can it start to get broken apart? And if it gets broken apart, how do you control what happens in one not affecting another? It will be broken apart. It has to be broken apart because Georgia has a speedy trial statute that if the defendant seeks it and two of the defendants so far have sought speedy trial, and a third one is about to, I think. Um, they have no choice um, but to give them that speedy trial in a couple of months. Now, they can't bring Donald Trump to trial in two or three months, so there's going to have to be a severance. Look, uh, the, the DA down there just lied through her teeth to the American public and to her constituents when she basically said, I could bring this case to trial in six months with all the defendants together. No, she can't. She knows it. And she knows she was misleading the American public. This case will have to be divided into several units. And that, of course, gives the defense some advantage because they get to see a preview of the Trump case uh, in the case against Cheeseboro and Powell, some of the others. So uh, it's going to be a mess. I mean, having it, it was so foolish to indict 19 people and to indict them under RICO. If they had a clean, small case, maybe they could have tried it in a reasonable period of time. But this case is a logistical nightmare. You mentioned and the judge is probably a, the judge's kid. I mean, you know, just uh, newly to the bench uh, with very little experience. Um, how that judge is going to handle this is going to be a real test. I'm, I hear good things about the judge, but no judge can handle a case like this <laughs> and give everybody a fair trial. Yeah, this I think this judge is going to be as popular or as well known as Lance Ito at some point. Uh, but. You mentioned your role in, in Bush v. Gore in 2000. Um, one of the things that they've gone after Trump and his team for is these fake electors. And um, wh- where's the line between his ability to to work within the process, meaning 
petition his government, call Brad Raffensperger, call uh, different people in the government and make his case um, versus what would be deemed maybe a criminal act? And how much should they look at Bush v. Gore in 2000 as a guide? They should look at it very closely. Uh, anything that requires you to ask the question, where do they draw the line, shouldn't be the subject of criminal prosecution. You know, it was, it was uh, Thomas Jefferson who once said, a criminal statute has to be so clear that a reasonable person uh, can understand that if he reads it while running, while running, uh, I've read these things while sitting with 60 years of experience. And I have to tell you, I don't understand the difference between legal and illegal. You know, people on one side call it fake electors. People on the other side call it alternate electors. In Hawaii, they had alternate electors in 1960. Uh, there is a memorandum uh, that uh, Professor Tribe wrote along with Cheeseborough, who was then his research assistant, which set out a whole bunch of ways of challenging uh, uh, Gore uh, versus Bush, Bush versus Gore. Um, I was not part of the Gore defense team, but I was the lawyer for the voters of Palm Beach County complaining about the butterfly ballot, where thousands of Jewish people voted accidentally for Pat Buchanan, who they hated, because they thought they were voting for Joe Lieberman, because his hole was next to the, the Joe Lieberman name, and they wanted to vote for the first Jew who was ever on a national ballot. We brought that to the attention of the authorities that day, but there was nothing that could be done. It was uh, too late. And that election may very well have been determined. But, but th that gets back to my point ballot. though. Professor, that's actually gets back to the other point that, that there seems to be this sense of, oh, well, and, and I think obviously, you know, there is a case to be discussed with respect to these people who voted because of the mechanism, the butterfly ballot that they were trying to punch and we had hanging chads and quasi hanging chads and all that kind of stuff. But to your point, it seems like they ruled afterwards, oh, well, the vote has been taken. There's nothing we can do. And that's kind of what I was asking you before. That that's right. That I, I, I can, my concern is that the, the court looks at what happens if Trump's removed from the ballot and says, well, too bad. It's the votes happened. We can't undo it. You can't, you can't do that. The American public would not stand for an election, which was determined by some secretary of state taking a candidate off the ballot under the 14th Amendment. But how's that, that different than what, but isn't that the argument that you're making in Palm Beach that you said because of this butterfly ballot, That's right. these people wanted to vote for Joe Lieberman uh, as vice president to Al Gore. They were, and, and it was enough of them were the clearly, you know, undermined in their effort to do that. That's what I get though, is that the, they clearly overlooked it once. And now I think that's right. What happened is Al Gore didn't want us to bring that any further. Uh, and he ordered us not to bring the butterfly ballot case uh, to the upper courts. And obviously we listened to him. I think that was a mistake. Uh, but his view was what could be done about it? You can't have another election. Uh, how do we how can we prove that these uh, Jewish voters who voted for uh, Buchanan really would have voted for Al Gore? It's obvious common sense but it would be difficult to prove in a court of law. And, and, and that would be true here too. Um, you know, you would disqualify them from a state and then uh, they would argue, well, who knows how the state would have gone. New Hampshire maybe would have gone uh, against uh, uh, Trump, um, maybe other states. So it would be speculative. That's why it's important for the Supreme Court to get these cases now, to take them up before the election, before the primaries. But that's a big ask. The Supreme Court likes to take its time. And I think that the sophisticated get Trump lawyers on the other side are taking advantage of this. Uh, they're using their knowledge of the law 
to deprive Americans of their right to vote. So as someone who has been through this a while, uh, obviously, Professor Emeritus at Harvard, you've written not just Get Trump, but I think you're up to like 542 books. Uh, no, just just 52. Just, just 52. <laughs> yeah, 52. Uh, okay. So, and you've covered it from all different angles. We use a word a lot these days in society, the weaponization of. Do you think that the weaponization, if I can use the term now, of the judicial system, of these laws to get Trump will have a profound lasting impact on how the law goes forward? Meaning folks on the right now are going to say, great, we're going to use it to go after so-and-so. We're going to go after so-and-so in more Republican or conservative-friendly yeah. jurisdictions. I have no doubt that that's going to happen. Weaponization started by people like Professor Tribe is contagious. Uh, there'll be tit-for-tat misuses of it on all sides, and it will become part of our system of, in, of injustice. Um, it's a terrible phenomenon that's going on. You know, throughout our history, people have said, oh, this is different. You have to suspend this right. It's different. We have to put 110,000 Japanese Americans in detention centers. It's different. We have to make sure that anybody who was on the left can't run for office in McCarthyism. That's different. The communist threat was, everybody always says it's different. Today, people are saying Trump is different. You know, when, when, when Larry David, who was a good friend of mine, who I helped his kid get into college, I, you know, entertained him at my house. He used my gym. When he starts screaming at me in Chilmark on Massachusetts saying, I'm disgusting, I'm despicable, uh, I could see the veins in his head almost bursting. It was as if he was talking to Heinrich Himmler, and I had just defended Adolf Hitler. Um, he sees Donald Trump as Adolf Hitler. And I've had people tell me that and attack me for in any way defending the rights of Adolf Hitler. What would you have done if Adolf Hitler asked you to be his lawyer? I'll tell you what I would have done. I would have killed him with my bare hands because Adolf Hitler is unique in history and, and, and you can't make those comparisons to Donald Trump. Donald Trump is running for office. I'm going to vote against him. You're going to vote for him. That's what America is about. Let the process go forward. Let it not be interfered with by the weaponization of our judicial system, which will become permanent. It will become permanent. The new McCarthyism is becoming the new Americanism, and that's the great tragedy. Let me ask you one more question, because I'm going to talk about this later in the week. You defended Donald Trump, as you said, not, not because you politically agree with him, because the law and how the thing was brought. There's a lot of talk now by Kevin McCarthy and House Republicans about impeaching Biden. Do you think that because of this effort to get Trump on the impeachment side, not the legal side, that we've now weaponized impeachment and we've changed what was meant to be high crimes and misdemeanors to we're just going to get anyone who's out of... Absolutely. Absolutely. They're going to go and try to get a ready... Congresswoman Brobart has introduced articles of impeachment. They are just as invalid as the articles of impeachment were against Donald Trump. They are misreading the Constitution, Republicans. Uh, you can't accuse right now on the record uh, uh, Biden of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. You need to have criminal-type behavior akin to treason and bribery. That's the argument I made in front of the Senate. I made that for Donald Trump. I would make the same argument for Joe Biden. For me, I don't care about the politics of it. I care only about the constitutionality. Okay. Professor Alan Dershowitz, the author of 52 books, including the latest Get Trump, uh, where you predicted literally these four uh, indictments. Uh, go buy the book. It's a great 
uh, I would say it's an addition to the conversation that we just had. But as always, you break down things in such an easy, simplistic way that us non-lawyers can understand it. I always appreciate your time and your counsel. So thank you, sir. Thank you. Wow, that was powerful. I mean, think about that, what he said. Alan Dershowitz, liberal Democrat, didn't vote for Trump, that if they take his name off the ballot, it's an illegitimate election. And here's how it'll play out. I've not heard that anywhere else. This is a guy who's involved in Bush v. Gore down in Palm Beach. And here's how he says it's going to happen. Uh, these is not right-wing talking points, folks. Go read it. Google New Hampshire Trump off ballot. It's, this is the playbook. Um, and so it was great to see, um, to have this conversation. And I know for a lot of people, they're saying, why'd you bring on Dershowitz? The guy's told you he hates Trump. That's the point. That's the exact point. If someone on the left says this, then you know it's true. This isn't a Republican talking point, a right-wing talking point. Alan Dershowitz believes in the Constitution. He believes in the rule of law. Here's a guy that went on the floor of the U.S. Senate to defend Trump as one of his impeachment lawyers. I mean, that's a lot more than a lot of Republicans have done to defend Trump. So just stop and think about that. The guy's given up more money to defend Trump. Why? Think about it. He's told me that People, you heard the story about Larry David. They've stopped inviting him to events. And, you know, again, I, I, but, but he didn't have to do that. And he's a Democrat. Like I said, I know enough Republicans who won't do anything to defend what's going on. Ridiculous, because they're so, oh, well, it's Trump, so let it go. Here's a guy who's a liberal Democrat that's willing to suffer the consequences because it's the right thing to do for the Constitution and the rule of law. So how many people are willing to do that right now? I don't know that many. It's funny. I mean, I, I talk to people all the time. They want, I don't want to vote for Trump. I don't, I don't like some of the things he says. Right? Do you like some of the things he did? Lower taxes, made us energy independent, secured the border, got our trade deals back and started cut taxes, lowest unemployment rate for blacks, veterans, women, you name it. But he was willing to take a stand. Again, I look at a lot of Republicans and a lot of conservatives who cower, go into the fetal position. They won't stand up. So before you dish on Alan Dershowitz, think about that. He gave up a lot. He did the right thing. And, uh, and frankly, that's part of the, you know, the reason, the ethos, the id, what do you want to call it, of the show. I'm going to give you the tools to win. We've got to figure out what we're up against. I would never in my whole life have thought that a political party would fight to take somebody off a ballot. I can't believe what happened in 2020. Drop boxes, voting that wasn't permitted by state constitutions. Everyone just turned the blind eye. And now they, even with that, that, that was a lot closer than they thought. So now they're willing to go even further. So we've got to find to make sure that we have the tools to win, to know what we're up against, Dershowitz just laid it all out. Don Jr., when we talked to him in Milwaukee, says, yeah, it's going to the Supreme Court. It's going to the Supreme Court. It's the president's son. So we've got to know what we're up against, but then we've also got to be willing to, to fight and fight smart. We talked about this last week, this impeachment thing. A lot of people want it. I get it. Is it the smart thing to do? Because if we lose the house, and I made the point last week, we lose the house, 
<laughs> we lose the country. So there's a lot at stake. I, I mean, and I, I don't think it's just, there's some culture stuff, yeah. But I also think national security wise, look what's happening. China's just waiting. I mean, they're like that sort of just circling. There's a lot at stake. So let's make sure we know what we're up against and how to fight back. And more importantly, how to win. That's what we're doing every single day is giving you an understanding of what's happening, right? You thought the thing with the kid in Colorado, he fought back. That kid fought back, his mom fought back and they won. So let's start thinking about what we're worth willing to do to win. What you can help me do to win, subscribe. Thank you for that. I appreciate everyone who's doing it. Thanks so much going to, to Apple Podcasts searching the Sean Spicer show. I, I kind of made it easy for you, right? We didn't make this like some really complicated name. And then make sure that you're watching, if you're watching on YouTube or Rumble, that you're hitting the subscribe and notification button so that you get it every day. And even if you don't want it every day, it just helps us grow and show how important independent media is in the current ecosystem. So thank you for that. I hope you had a great weekend. I will see you right back here tomorrow. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.